You are listening to Post Growth Australia podcast, the podcast where better is definitely better than bigger. Hello, all and sundry, and welcome back to another episode of Post Growth Australia podcast. Michael Bayless is my name. Post Growth is my game. One of the most glaring problems of modern global North societies is the degree of material consumption and waste. Not only the total amount of consumption in countries such as Australia, but also the inequality between the global North and the global South. If everyone lived like Australians, we'd need 5.2 Earths to sustain us, whereas if everyone lived like Costa Ricans, we'd be almost breaking even. This is according to some studies. This is not only an environmental issue, but also a social justice issue. But is this also a personal issue? Is Australian society simply a summation of ravenous hedonistic individuals, or is this a structural problem of modern neoliberalism imposing a way of being amongst its citizenry, despite any best intentions of the individual, or a bit of both? Before we start flagellating ourselves too much over our greedy hedonism, it is worth noting that inequality is an issue within the national borders as it is between countries. This has got worse over time. It is almost as if rising inequality is a waste byproduct of growth itself. For example, a New Start recipient receives $40 a day, whereas your average federal MP earns $40 in just over half an hour in Australia. Gina Reinhart gets his amount in 1.5 seconds. There's a bit of a gulf. And having a decent salary by world standards doesn't mean living the silver platter for new generations of Australians. Sure, you may be able to eat out and enjoy smashed avo every day and fly from Brisbane to Perth each year, but that doesn't mean you can afford a roof over your head with today's weird and warped pricing system. And for a rich country, the health, social and infrastructure services seem to be looking really tired lately. With all these nuances and complications, how does a society know when enough is enough and it is time to stop growing, developing, consuming? How does a society know when it has arrived and doesn't need to keep striving for more? How does a society know when it hasn't yet arrived where growing the economy and material living standards is still a good idea? What are the ceiling limits to look out for? Who better to come to my rescue on this philosophical quagmire of a question than Catherine Trebek, Senior Strategic Advisor for the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, which she co-founded in 2018, and co-author of The Economics of Arrival, Ideas for a Grown-Up Economy, which she co-wrote with Jeremy Williams. Catherine was born in Australia and now based in the exciting melting pot hub of progressive thinking, which is Scotland. I first met Catherine during the book launch in Melbourne in 2019, I think. I was catching up that day with two fellow activists who are professors and academics from Adelaide, as you do, who dragged me along to the Wheeler Centre to see the book launch. I was very impressed by Catherine's speech and combined with the impulsiveness of having one too many wines, I bought a copy of The Economics of Arrival. I was obviously part of the consumption problem that day. A couple of years later, I wondered if the author of this very excellent book would be willing to be interviewed on PGAP to unpack some of the ideas of the book and walk me through some of the questions and ideas I still had swimming in my head to this day. I was hugely relieved when Catherine said yes. It was a good thing I asked her to take part before I watched her TEDx video on YouTube, which has amassed over 64,000 views. Otherwise, I would have been too nervous to ask. So thank you for arriving on this PGAP episode on the economics of arrival. After the interview, I will play a track from the Melbourne group Privateer. They are a duo comprised of two of my closest friends and fellow vegans, and I sang backup vocals towards the end of the track Ticonderoga. What can I say? It's who you know these days. Enjoy. Welcome back to PGAP. 
And I'm delighted to be virtually sitting here with Catherine Trebek, because last time we met uh, was with your book launch in Melbourne. But that was back in the before times when we could travel. How are you holding up over in Scotland? So I'm based in Scotland and we're hearing today, apparently, the First Minister announcing the roadmap out of lockdown, which I think everyone is really, really looking forward to. It's been a massive year. Uh, I'm fairly lucky in that I'm one of the fortunate ones to be able to work from my kitchen table. If we knew this time last year just how long it would go on, I'm not sure how people would have reacted, but of course it unfolded almost month by month. It's just amazing seeing all the impacts become apparent. I think there are impacts we haven't even realised yet in terms of developmental impacts on young children that haven't been passed around to strangers, haven't met their grandkids, let alone all the mental layers of mental health impact, all the jobs, all the businesses that, that won't come back. And it's it's really quite extraordinary to think that, yes, a year ago, we really had no idea what was coming down the highway to us. So I'm looking forward to being able to get out to the Scottish mountains <laughs> that I've missed. I feel very lucky. I live in a very small flat uh, in Glasgow, but I'm on the fourth floor, which means I have these massive views. And Michael, I think something something like that has honestly kept me from going claustrophobic <laughs> this, last, this last year, something so special. And now I think that's my absolute priority if I'm ever moving out is to have those views again. It's funny how you, you change your priorities after a year in lockdown. Well, as someone who spent eight months in lockdown in Melbourne and is now just travelling madly up and down the Australian coastline, I feel a huge degree of solidarity. <laughs> Catherine, give us a little bit of a summary of yourself, your professional background, what you're passionate about and we're going to be focusing on your book soon so um, maybe give us a little bit of spiel in that a little bit about the Wellbeing Economy Alliance as well. I'll start where I am now so I'm, I'm working for the Wellbeing Economy Alliance which is a, a global collaboration of people and organisations and movements and businesses who are incredibly diverse but all united by their sense that if we're going to have a chance of addressing the challenges facing the world today, we need to really look at how the economic system works. And, and I know we're going to dig into that later, but they're also united by the sense that in order to bring about that economic system change that's so necessary, we need to collaborate like we've never collaborated before. And that's what we all is really about. Really excited to say that yesterday was an early meeting of what, what might become a We All Australia hub, uh, which would be really exciting. We're seeing these local hubs emerge around the world. I've been part of the emergence of the Scotland hub, I'm really proud to say, but there's hubs bubbling up in Ireland, in the Netherlands, in Trinidad, in California, in Canada, in New Zealand. And so it'd be really great to have an Australian hub as part of that. So that's where I am now, sort of a foot in the global camp and also so a foot in the We All Scotland community. Before that, I worked for almost a decade with Oxfam in various different roles, mainly as a researcher and a bit of a policy geek there, looking at poverty and inequality in Scotland, but also in their global research team. And just really that took me into a, wanting to understand the root causes of the issues that Oxfam was working on. And perhaps it was particularly when I was looking at poverty and inequality in Scotland, you know, part of one of the richest, in money terms, one of the richest countries in the world. And yet parts of Scotland, just a few miles away from where I live here, are parts where life expectancy has been going down over the last few decades and these extraordinary health inequalities. And so it really almost hit me so profoundly in the face that just being a wealthy country in the collective sense, is not necessarily a route to good lives for people. But then also seeing with that global perspective for Oxfam that all the work in terms of trying to increase the basic needs of communities around the world was being set back by the way countries in the global north, for want of a better term, were managing their production and consumption systems. And I, I really had this growing sense 
that if Oxfam's mission was to be successful to address poverty and inequality around the world, we needed to have a good hard look at the economic models of places like the UK. And so that almost led me to the, the Wellbeing Economy Alliance. As I said, I met you briefly for the launch of your then new book, Economics of Arrival. Um, I found it a fantastic read. I'm not just saying that because I'm interviewing you on To Stroke Your Ego. I actually read it from cover to cover and given my attention span, um, <laughs> that's quite a feat. Oh, now, speaking you. of attention spans, I've written 3,000 word articles and 11 page parliamentary submissions and nearly tore my hair out. So I'm really curious what goes into writing a book and how do you maintain your attention span, your sanity and keeping up with all those bloody track changes from your editors? Um, and what inspired you to write this book? So one of the joys of writing Arrival was the experience of writing it with Jeremy Williams, my, my co-author. We were introduced by, by an Aussie guy, actually, a guy called Donnie McClurkin, who lives in Oregon now. And so we almost had this intellectual blind date. Donnie just said, you two have got to meet. And this is when I was working with Oxfam. And so I was down in London for work and we, we met at a cafe. And Jeremy just happened to mention you know, just been passing in conversation, how he said rich countries just need to recognise that they've arrived. And there was something about that idea, and I don't know if it's because I was away from home, away from Australia, that idea of arrival was a, had a visceral meaning for me, that sense of getting to a place and knowing your your home. And so it, really, it struck, struck me, that phrase. And and as we, we write about, I think, in the, the forward to the book, we said, wow, that's a great idea. Let's unpack that. Let's write a blog. And we never wrote the blog because it became a discussion paper and we never wrote the discussion paper because it became a book. But it was a slow process, I'll, I'll confess, because we both had our day jobs. Jeremy had young kids. Actually, when we were doing some of the launch events in, in the UK, he, he used to tell audiences that he, we started writing Arrival when his young daughter was just born and that she then was five years old. And I, I was a bit embarrassed by that because I think, Jeremy, you're, you're telling everyone just how slow we were to get this thing out, out into, into the big wide world. But we, it really was a labour of love on top of our day job. It was a delight working with Jeremy. Uh, we're very different. We came to it from different perspectives. We did have arguments by track changes, little wars in the comments section of, of our various drafts. It was a lot about a bit of ping pong. When he said that phrase, almost just inadvertently in, in our first meeting, that rich countries just need to recognise that they've arrived, it really did speak to the questions that I was holding in my work at Oxfam at the time. I think some of your viewers will probably have heard of the idea of uh, donut economics, and I worked with Kate Rayworth very closely at Oxfam, and when she left, she passed to me a project around downscaling the donut. I'd been carrying some of those concepts, and it was just that almost throwaway sentence from Jeremy that really sparked something. And, and we unpacked it, and we added concepts to it, and particularly the idea that arrival in and of itself isn't enough. The second part, it's a dual concept. The second part is the, almost the more, more crucial element of the, the book is the idea of making ourselves at home and how does that apply to how we redesign, repurpose our economic system. I really enjoy writing. I enjoy researching. What I struggle with is those policy meetings or those advocacy conversations or those fundraising meetings that some of my colleagues are so good at. I'm, I'm happy just sitting at my desk, looking out over the rooftops and, and writing away on my laptop. So it was one of the things I've really, really most enjoyed. And we were lucky too, Michael, in that we had a really lovely publisher in terms of policy press. Uh, they, they're a social enterprise as well, and in, in the sense that that really speaks to the sort of business models that we think we need more of in an economy that's making itself at home, and they are a delight to work with as well. Uh, we had some rejections, as I think most authors probably do, as we were trying to find a publisher, but we we really were very lucky to end up with policy press, and I'm I'm actually exploring a, another book with them too at the moment. Fingers crossed. To what extent do you think the arguments in the book resonate with the ideas of the steady state post-growth or even degrowth movements? 
Yes, there's a, there's a lot of affinity with those schools of thought and we really draw on a lot of that scholarship and that intellectual heavy lifting that's bun, done by the degrowthers and by the steady state scholars. For, uh, for us, it's very much about trying to prise open that almost forbidden question that growth has a destination. Uh, that it can serve a purpose. And, and we, we acknowledge that when growth is used well, and I would say that's a huge caveat, when growth is used well, when it's used to invest in our collective institutions, health systems, clean water, education systems, when it's directed to poorer parts of, of a society, when it's pro-poor, you do see returns on growth in terms of some of those social progress measures that we'd be wanting to see. Life expectancy, literacy rates, health, health outcomes, infant mortality, those sorts of things. But what happens is those economies enter a stage of what most economists would understand as diminishing marginal returns, essentially you get less bang for your buck. And that's one of the core ideas at the heart of arrival, that growth, when it's used well, can deliver, but there's no point at going on indefinitely because it's just, it, it has done its job. And actually, one of the other concepts is that if we keep pushing for more and more growth, the risk is that we enter a stage, a period of failure demand. Anyone listening to this, when you listen to the news tomorrow or flick through the newspaper, you'll start to see examples of failure demand all over the place, whether it's the government topping up low wages because work isn't paying enough to lift people out of poverty, whether it's housing benefit. Food banks, we're seeing a huge rise of food banks here in the UK and the government money going into that, whether it's more and more hospital wings to deal with people's mental health because they're stressed and alienated by their precarious livelihoods. So many layers onto this. And in environmental terms as well, ecological economists would talk about defensive expenditure. And again, you can think about so many examples of that, cleaning up after an oil spill, rebuilding after a catastrophic bushfire that's being exacerbated by climate change, all those sorts of things. So it's not just diminishing marginal return but actually you enter a stage where so much of what growth is going towards being spent on is driven by our unequal, unsustainable economies. And so there's some of the key concepts at the heart of the, the idea of arrival. And then the idea is, well, if we start to take those things seriously, maybe we can pause and say in GDP rich countries, we have got enough in a collective sense. Maybe it's now time to take a very different challenge and really invest in distributing that wealth and resources in a much fairer way, cherishing them in, in a way that really regenerates a natural world rather than just extracts from them. And so that is what we describe as the second part, the, the duality of the idea, and that's about making ourselves at home. That's about asking the economy to do more of the heavy lifting, which is a my shorthand for this idea of pre-distribution. So often our discussion is how do we redistribute the, the gap between rich and poor. And we don't often ask, well, why has that gap opened up in the first place? And we could even see redistribution as an example of failure demand. So, and yet we celebrate that when we've slightly reduced the gap between rich and poor, when we've done a bit of a transfer or topped up welfare, welfare for example, why don't we ask enough, well, how can we get the economy to distribute outcomes in a much fairer way from the beginning? And so that's a, the sort of conversation that we're hoping will be sparked by the ideas in economics of arrival. Fantastic. I was um, just wondering how a society can develop the instinct to tell when growth has stopped becoming good and when it starts becoming bad. And you've touched on some of the things of bad growth. Um, what, what are some of the key things to look out for? And just, just further to this, I, I recall having a debate with someone recently where he asked me, how do you define growth anyway? So I gave him a bunch of my answers and, and none of them satisfied him. So, you know, for you, um, are we, for example, talking about the GDP or material acquisition or the rate in which a society converts a natural world to machines and consumer goods or none of the above? So I, I have come to these conversations from the beyond GDP door. I guess there's a lot of doors into the wellbeing economy, new, new economy space and for me it was through the beyond GDP door so I very much look at 
what's our default measure of success of our economy in countries like Australia and the UK? How, when we're looking at what's a developed country, how do we define that? And so often it defaults back to our gross domestic product per capita. Here in the UK, there's a frenzied debate around, is it going to be a V-shaped recovery or a U-shaped recovery or a K-shaped recovery or L-shaped recovery? All of that is about our GDP per capita. GDP, I feel sometimes a little bit sorry for it because it's it's been used way beyond what it was ever designed to be used for. And, and it's breaking at the seams because of that. GDP counts how much we spend in the official market, whether it's government spending or business spending or consumer spending. It tallies up our expenditure. It's pretty much blind to distribution, doesn't care about whether that expenditure is driven by a bushfire, as we were saying earlier, and having to rebuild afterwards, or whether it's developed by, for example, a new workers' cooperative or a new renewable energy initiative, for example. It's completely blind to underneath that. And so, so often we're focused on the rate of growth and I think it's time we had a, a more rich conversation about the direction and composition of growth rather than just being obsessed by, you know, X percentage point per quarter. Well, what's in that? Because there are certainly some things we need more of. There are some parts of Australia that probably need more growth. There are certainly some parts of Scotland that need more growth. And yet we don't have that nuanced conversation. We think about just get the economy growing faster and faster and keep our fingers crossed that that will solve all our problems, that will lead to more jobs, that will increase people's sense of material security. And it hasn't. And we've seen even prior to the pandemic so many examples of where we had a growing economy and it we were still seeing, as I said at the very beginning, life expectancy falling in parts of Glasgow. We saw people becoming with loneliness going up, self-harm rates amongst young kids growing up, inequalities growing, people feeling scared for their future because of the damage we're doing to the environment. And so growth really has proved itself not up to the task in that bland sense. And I think it's really time for us to have a, a richer conversation, not only about the composition and direction of growth, but also about understanding the difference between means and ends. And you would think that's a fairly simple <laughs> disentanglement, but so often I hear in, in debates on the news or meetings I go to, people just assuming that we'll grow the economy and that will be great. But what they're forgetting is that what we need to do is reposition what sort of growth in service of what I describe as higher order goals. The beginning of your question was around how can we develop those instincts? How can we open up that conversation? I mean, partly I think the answer lies in listening to what we probably as a society instinctively know anyway. I mean, there are so many opinion polls, for example, when we're emerging from the pandemic, they're wanting governments to prioritise health and wellbeing above growing the economy. When you have deliberative conversations with people, really wherever you are in the world, when they're Communities are given a chance to sit down with a cup of tea or a beer and have a conversation about what really matters to them. They won't say it's faster, faster GDP growth. They will say it's their relationships, having a decent local environment. It's knowing that those they care about are safe. It's having a sense of meaning and purpose. So almost this is about really bringing to the fore what makes us innately human and prioritising an economy around that. And I think the challenge is that while that's there deep, I guess, in our hearts, in our souls, in our conversations, what happens is that the, the narrow sense of the economy has trumped that and almost crowded out that innate knowledge that people, I think, really do, do hold when they stop and think what really matters to them. And so one of the, I think, the key tasks for those of us who are thinking about these issues is to open up those conversations, open up the possibility of thinking about, well, what is the purpose of the economy in the first place? It's not just something that's like gravity or it's inevitable. We can design it differently. It's in our power to design it differently. And that's a task of 
policymakers and politicians, how they set tax rates, what sort of things they incentivize or subsidize. It's in the task of local towns and communities. How do they design their infrastructure? How much green space versus how much space for shopping do they create? Is there space for communities to come together and sing or dance or just chat together rather than just shop and shop and shop? It's what sort of business models we have. And it's really exciting to see in Australia, there's a flourishing what's been described by the Harvard economist Harad Sabiti, the emerging fourth sector. And these are businesses that are commercially viable, so they make a profit, but they do so in order to fulfil what I'd describe as those higher order goals of social or, or environmental benefits. So these are worker cooperatives, community cooperatives, social enterprises, B corporations, economy for the common good businesses. There's a whole plethora out there, but these are the sort of businesses that are, I think, really key to building an economy that's making itself at home. One of the indicators for me that growth is now bad is when I recently read an article that the weight of the human built world now exceeds the weight of the Earth's biomass. Now, you know, further we hear of climate change and dirty fossil fuels, but we're less aware of the fact that we're running out of building materials like, you know, good sand for construction. Surely these are pretty clear indicators, at least at a global stage, that we've exceeded arrival and we need to stop doing what we're doing, like stop building stuff, you know, stop building so many more skyscrapers in our capital cities that are all, you know, at risk of bursting into flames and making sure, you know, the ones that we do have aren't flammable. So what are your thoughts? I think it's a really good point about it's really time to cherish and make better use of the literally material resources that we have. I mean, Collectively, societies waste so much. I mean, there's a big thing here in the UK of these massive ships of British people's rubbish being sent to lower income countries, but then it's such poor quality, it often is getting sent, sent back. One of the famous figures is that there's more gold in a pile of waste of a ton of wasted mobile phones than there is in a ton of ore. We need to get better at unpacking our material goods and reusing. And this is the idea of the circular economy. The way we've used the natural world in places like the UK and Australia over the last few decades is with this assumption that what mother nature gives us is infinite and we can just keep taking and then keep throwing into the, the waste. And it's that linear mode of economic production, consumption. And as you said, the, the finite nature of the world really demands that we stop and rethink that. And so it's exciting to see conversations around the circular economy getting taken up with vigour. It's exciting to see people really think about how they can reuse and repurpose and redesign their goods. By the University of Leeds, there's an amazing group of ecological economists there, and it's a project called Living Well Within Limits. And I'm a tiny part on their, on their advisory board, but what they're trying to do is answer some of those questions that you've identified. How much stuff do we need to have a good life? What are those basic human needs? And then what is the material component to fulfill them? So they're trying to ask, answer some of those, those really tricky questions in terms of how much tonnage do we need, for example. But if you think about it, just in, for one example, in terms of food, we know that almost 50% of the food that is grown around the world is wasted. In countries like ours, like the UK and Australia, it's wasted by families just throwing it away. In perhaps lower-income countries, it's often between the farm gate and market, so it's a distribution logistical question there. But to me, that's just an example that there is enough to go around. We're just really bad at sharing and cherishing those resources. And so the, the conversation has to be around how can we make better use of what we've got? I mean, this is a world of plenty. It's not a world of shortage. But the problem is it's become this false world of shortage for so many communities. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for putting that in that perspective. Now, if you don't mind, I'm going to ask a slightly um, namaste question, which I'm always nervous asking an academic and that must stay question, but as someone who believes that behavioural and even spiritual change underpin societal and economic change, I was interested to read some of the psychological problems facing the global north uh, or economies that have arrived but are still growing that you identified in the book, such as addiction, depression, but also people starting to refocus on their 
priorities on their life away from consumption and towards community, you know, over material hoarding. Um, I was just wondering if you'd like to expand on this just a little bit. Can I posit the question, can we change a system without changing ourselves or at least our stories? So, so there's two parts to that that question there. I mean, one of the things that is so extraordinary sitting here in, in Glasgow is just seeing conversations around rising levels of drug deaths. We have the teachers union in the UK talking about self-harm, rising levels of loneliness as well, perhaps counterintuitively most experienced by young people. All these figures add up to me is a bit of a clarion call, a bit of a wake-up call for society that it is not just okay to have shiny shopping centres and fancy cars and trendy new kitchens when our 13-year-old daughters are so stressed and anxious or fearful of shame that they're self-harming. There is something profoundly wrong with that society. We often hear that the, the experience of, of shame, of you know, looking visibly poor, for example, is one of the most profound human emotions. So there's something very, very ill going on with our societies when people do not have hope for the future. They do not feel they have someone to talk to. And we're seeing that translated. And I don't want to put a price tag on such human cost, but you can, because we're seeing that in more and more hospital emissions, more and more treatment, more and more prescriptions as well. So it has a fiscal price tag as, as well, which is, which just shows there's no reason why we can't afford to address some of this. And so that, I think, is a, re a wake-up call for society, that we need to profoundly look at the way we structure our economy, the way we take care of each other, the, do jobs deliver meaning and purpose, do people feel they can trust each other, how are our communities designed, can people interact, do we have those deliberative conversations that I was talking about earlier, all those questions. In terms of the other part of what you were asking about around the role of changing ourselves in terms of changing the system, what absolutely is is vital to it for, for a couple of reasons. One in that I think human behavioural change, one that's important in terms of the self sense of agency that folks get from feeling that they're at least part of the solution, that they're feeling proactive and that's really important because that leads to more and more actions themselves. It also is a hell of a signal to politicians. So there's a, a quote in the book from I think someone from JP Morgan mocking uh, saying, well, we don't care if you raise chickens. Take that logic a little bit further. If more and more people start to raise chickens, that's going to start to change the market. That's going to send some pretty strong signals. And so behavioural change does add up in terms that it sends a signal to businesses and to politicians that communities are taking a particular issue very seriously and they need to step in and be on the right side of that conversation. I think there's also something important, though, about how as activists and as change makers we think about our own behaviour. Do we try to model the sort of change we want to see? Are we looking after ourselves and each other? Uh, this work is really difficult and I suspect folks listening to the, this podcast in all their different ways are part of trying to make change. And they'll realise and probably have experienced just how challenging that can be. And there is something about taking care of ourselves. And there's a, a quote I'm, I'm often reminding people of from a wonderful um, African-American poet and activist, Audre Lorde, self-care is self-preservation and that is an act of political warfare. I love that phrase because it really begs on us to also stop and think about how we are. Are we getting enough rest? Are we spending time outdoors? Are we looking after each other? Those sorts of questions as well, I think are really important. It's often talked about the material privilege of economies that have arrived versus economies that have uh, yet to arrive, you know, the normal, global north versus global south um, divide. I mean, this is talked a lot about in, in environmentalism and um, left circles. And I wonder sometimes that generational gap gets overlooked in this conversation um as someone who's under 40 myself looking at the say the baby boomer generation i feel just a, a drop and a fall from grace and that I, I suppose people in my generation are stuck in this weird 
half world where we're provided all these material goods that we can buy so easily and it looks like privilege but we can't <laughs> afford a roof over our, held, our heads to put all our um, um, cheaply bought Kmart stuff in. So it's a, it's a really good question Michael and I think that phrase half world is is quite profound and I I'm slightly older than you and I've been able to buy a house and have, have a mortgage my tiny little flat here in, here in Glasgow but in terms of the intergenerational question I mean I think young folks younger communities one are at the forefront of of this change because they have known the climate emergency as a reality uh, it's never been in dispute they've grown up understanding just how profound the impact and the pressure that humanity is putting on the planet their idea of a job for life has just is foreign is something that their parents and grandparents talk about they're shifting already to this idea of access rather than ownership so the idea of freedom is not about owning loads of things but about having access to them so that collaborative economy mentality but there's also challenges in that too because you know, th these are things that are pushed almost onto young younger generations because of the precarious economic system surrounding them. So it's almost a lack of choice that's forcing younger people to be entrepreneurial and start their own businesses and focus on you know collaborative and co-housing and so on, where perhaps maybe they just want to you know move into into more secure homing. And I think it's a really it's a really profound question. It's of course also in very sharp relief here in the UK because of the impact of COVID and the intergenerational divide in terms of one who's more like the generations that are more likely to be get sick by COVID, but also the generations that are more likely uh, to be hit economically by the fallout. And it was just in the in the news today that over half the people who have lost their jobs in the last year are under 25. And it's because of the nature of the work that they're likely to do in hospitality and retail and tourism, for example. And so how as a society do we grapple with those questions? How do we make room for younger generations to feel they have a secure pathway to build a livelihood and build a life that they they are proud of and they feel is, has they have dignity and i think there's something about how we understand work and do we share work better do we move to shorter working weeks so that the available work is more available to to a wider suite of people do we think about different conversations around inheritance taxes for example i mean there's some so often in places like the UK and Australia, talking about inheritance tax is seen as a no-go area. Well, we need to we need to talk about if we're going to fix some of the intergenerational inequalities, because the more people can gift on their homes, for example, their wealth to their fortunate uh, children who are probably already in that older generation themselves, we're just going to exacerbate that intergenerational inequality. So there's a lot of questions there we need to grapple with. But on top of that. Is the climate question it's your generation michael and those coming after you who are just going to be more and more hit by our failure to attend to the climate emergency and it's it's those like me and older than me who have done so much damage to it so there's a there's an intergenerational and a wealth inequality across those questions as well so often i talk about the climate emergency being a social justice question but it's also a a generational question as well now, speaking of housing, I'm currently in Tasmania and was delighted to read that the economy that has been lagging for so long and, you know, infrastructure and healthcare couldn't keep up. Well, the economy is now recovering because of the red hot real estate markets. So apparently you need escalating house prices that no one can afford. And, you know, Hobart being the last bastion of a preserved capital city and you know what's going to happen when the d developers come in, blah, 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 same odd story um what this leads me to is a question is traditionally tasmania has been this odd place where uh, so divided between logging's the only thing we have versus not logging and it was the industry that does not make a profit it's it's subsidized and i was having conversations with people what if we had 
MMT, modern monetary theory. So people could be employed to um, grow trees instead. I suppose this is my roundabout way of asking your thoughts on MMT and UBI as a way for currency issuer governments to bypass the need for ever escalating growth to you know, prop up languishing economies and to stop cutting down the bloody old growth trees. And your your the way you began that question is just such a, a brilliant example of, of how stuck our mindsets are in in the old broken paradigm that wow house prices are going up fantastic. We're growing the economy. It's and you know it's got rocket fuel in it. It's is everything will be fine now. GDP's going up, consumer prices are going up, the stock market's going up. They are apparently the fundamentals that we judge our success on. And as yet, as we've talked about, they're so often misaligned to what we really need as people and planets. So I really liked how you how you opened up that question. But in terms of modern monetary theory and, and UBIs, universal basic income, well, MMT, if anyone's interested in it, the person to go and read is Stephanie Kelton. And her book, The Deficit Myth, is is brilliant one of opening up again our that what I often describe, and sorry for the geeky term, but narrow, the narrow cognitive bandwidth that we have. We've got we're sort of stuck in this very small space of what it's possible to talk about. And so you you hear on the radio, of course, we just need to grow the economy faster and faster so we can pay back the this massive debt that governments have incurred responding to coronavirus. Well, one, interest rates are really low at the moment. Two, a lot of that debt's being created by central banks. And in terms of MMT, if you're a sovereign government, so it wouldn't apply to Tasmania, it would apply to Australian state, if you're able to create your own money, you can literally create money into the system that then you can spend on, for example, infrastructure projects or building renewable energy, uh, retrofitting our houses, for example, making them more energy efficient. It prizes open that economic orthodoxy that you need to grow to tax to be able to spend and it opens up all sense of possibility. I'm certainly not going to pretend I'm an expert on it. I just refer people to look at Stephanie Kelton's work and, and other scholars like. And in terms of universal basic income, I mean, at, at one level, how could you disagree with the idea that it's the right of everyone to have enough to live on? So at the most profound basic level, there's something inc- extraordinarily unarguable about UBI. For me, it's a case of yes and. To me, it doesn't touch enough of the other massive challenges in terms of wealth inequality, how we pre-distribute and how we design the economy in a way that pre-distributes much more fairly. It doesn't touch the extremes of wealth. It doesn't speak enough to how we attend to how we treat the natural world. But I think that's inevitable. Almost any solution is not going to do the job on its own. And if we're seeking apparent silver bullets or simple solutions, we'll box ourselves into a corner. I often think the the task of building an economy that makes itself at home or a well-being economy, as we describe it, is a case of maybe a 100,000-piece jigsaw puzzle. We need all sorts of changes. And, And yes, UBI would be part of that perhaps. But as would universal basic services, for example, as would changing the incentives to encourage more worker cooperatives, having more community gardens, for example, enhancing the circular economy and again and again, all those sorts of changes are really important. So UBI is something that I think it's really amazing to see the traction it's getting at the moment from all sorts of different countries. There's lots of experiments going on at the moment. Uh, all sorts of questions, though, for me around practically how how it's brought in. Often the examples I've seen and the policy suggestions have not set the rate high enough to incre- increase people above the, the poverty line. To me, one of the exciting things about UBI is how it can rebalance the relationship of power in employment relationships. Because if someone's earning enough to get by to put food on their table, to take care of their family. It means they don't need to take any old job. They don't need to subject themselves to degrading work or to work where they're bullied. They can go to their employer and say, I want this. I want I want different standard of, of work. It shifts that conversation around power in the workplace. And I think that's one of the most exciting things about UBI, but it of course has to be set high enough to have that benefit. But I also then would say 
that confrontation scenario in the workplace is something that worries me as well. So I'd say we also need to look to worker cooperatives where you're not seeing employer versus employee scenarios anymore. Let's think about work business models where you can have the interests of workers aligned with those of the business as well. So to me, UBI is important, but it's certainly not enough on its own. Just wanted to add in there that Stephanie's uh, book, The Deficit Myth, was the other book recently I've been able to read from cover to cover and um, was always aware of it and COVID brought it up, but that book is just amazing. Um, Speaking of uh, what, narrow... Narrow cognitive bandwidth. Oh, I love it. (laughs) Do you mind, Catherine, if I ask you a question on population? Is that okay? Go for it. Well, firstly, I applaud you for dedicating a page and a half to population in uh, economics of arrival. What I read from it is that it was recognised as a thing, but um, perhaps not a big thing. Um, But having read that, it got me uh, thinking um, in many economies that have arrived, say, you know, Japan has 120 million people. It's often reported with a degree of sadness that populations in these countries are now stable or shrinking. Is another possible reframe that for many of these countries that have now arrived, the populations have already exceeded Um, the carrying capacity of their local biosphere and therefore the demographic transition of developed industrial countries, that of low death and um, low birth rates, should be encouraged rather than policies designed to prop up, especially population growth for narrow economic interests. Um, surely the last thing the world needs is even more Western consumers. And I think your your final words there are absolutely key. so often the conversations around population are, I guess, tinged, I'd say, with a sort of very, this is a polite way of saying it, a very blunt perspective that often sees population as something that's rising exponentially in lower income countries. And that's the challenge on our environment. Uh, It's women in Bangladesh having too many kids, apparently. And That's not the case. The environmental footprint of our cousins and friends in lower income countries is so much smaller than yours or mine. And so it is very much a case of Western consumers being brought into the world. So the the impact on the environment, we mentioned this in the book, the IPAT equation, impact equals population times affluence times technology. That's one of the equations that's often talked about. How do we understand the relevance? So So yes, population matters, but we can't just focus in on it and ignore questions of affluence and also technology as a a way to lighten our our impact of our consumption patterns on the environment. So things that we were talking about earlier, circular economy, for example, collaborative economy is important. But for me, I think the the conversation around population so often can be a dangerous red herring because it risks putting all the onus of change on communities that are not the ones who are doing most damage to the planet. It risks just being a an excuse to protect and preserve excessive consumerist lifestyles in the Western world. And even if we reduce, say we had a population, say of 6 billion, even if we can imagine that having less pressure on the planet, what it doesn't attend to is that extractive nature of the economic system that's not delivering quality lives for people, that's only delivering precarious jobs for so many people. I mean, here in the UK, massive scourge of casualisation, zero-hour contracts, people literally being on demand at the click of an app in the gig economy. All of that, you know, it's very hard to build a stable, dignified life when you're being treated as just in time inventory and so the population question doesn't speak to any of those questions inequality the extractive nature of 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 the economic system that we've got work that doesn't deliver meaning and sense of purpose and autonomy and so to me the population question risks diverting the the conversation in a really unhelpful way so yes it does matter but i think questions around our consumerist lifestyles in in the rich 
Western world is where we really need to be honing our attention as a matter of urgency. Thank you for that perspective. I was just wondering um, if there's a broader uh, consideration that it is risky to focus on any one given thing. Um, Say, for example, you you know, many of the Greens Party with the Green News New Deal and um, that renewables alone will save everything. But those who say that it's just wealth inequity, for those who say it's just consumption, um, for me, I think all the factors need to be respected within the context of everything else that's going around and to say this one thing but not everything else falls into that common fallacy falling into binaries this and not that where it should be kind of everything um, or as much as everything as our brains can hold at each given time. Well, so. And that's a good point yeah. because humans can only carry so much complexity at, around at once and there's so much that that is to be, you know, if, you, if you're taking the, the world seriously, there's a lot to be overwhelmed with and the challenges that we've been talking about require such a multifaceted suite of changes and I, I talked about the 100,000-piece jigsaw. I mean, that's what we're dealing with. We need changes across the system. What's great, though, is that people are diving into different pieces of that jigsaw puzzle. So you have people who are championing UBI, you have people championing MMT, you have people championing more worker cooperatives, you have people championing circular economy. One of the most exciting places where the the wider movement is now is that people are really recognising how they all start to speak to each other and that they all come from a place where there's core values of about how do we deliver social justice on a healthy planet and that's everyone has a different emphasis and their different contribution they want to make for it for that. And so partly to go back to one of your very early questions, why the Wellbeing Economy Alliance was created is to try to help connect up and you know show that I guess the, the big picture on the front of the jigsaw puzzle box. This is what we're all working towards, folks. We're all part of the same movement. We're all part of, these are all cousin projects that we're all contributing to the the same conversation, the same agenda, but all in our different ways, all delivering something that's useful to that. And I I think you're absolutely right. If anyone tries to say this one change will fix everything, I think you've got to look very sceptically about why someone thinks it's anything so complex could be solved so simply. Fantastic. And um, thank you for your very uh, nuanced and all-encompassing <laughs> answers to so many of these questions. It's been great having you on. And um, I think the post-growth movement is richer for having you and your book, <laughs> Economics on Arrival, uh, in the world. Um, if people are as enthusiastic as me and would like to read the book and keep up to date with the good work that you do, where can they go and how they how can they say, hi, we love your work? Well, thank you, Michael. It's been really lovely to start the day here in Glasgow with a conversation with you. I've really enjoyed it. And thanks for all the work that you're doing in taking these conversations out there and helping unpack some of these complex questions for your, your listeners. It's been really, really great. And thank you for coming along a few years ago to the book launch. It was great to meet you in person then. So in terms of your question, I'm on Twitter. Um, I've also got a website. I'm a little bit embarrassed to say, but I'm really lucky I talk about about the gift economy a lovely media company in glasgow has just created a website for me so i think it looks really nice so folks can go along to that it's katherinetrebeck.com and there's a contact form there but twitter is the main one that i which completely marks me out as an older <laughs> older fuddy-duddy the fact i still use twitter whereas most young people are completely ditched twitter but but that's where i am at the moment And also, of course, the Wellbeing Economy Alliance is a way to get involved. We've got a citizens platform as well, but weall.org is a place to go and get connected with all the other amazing folks who are working to build an economy that's about social justice on a healthy planet. Well, if it was great to begin your day (laughs) um, chatting on PGAP podcasts, um, well, it was great to end my day um, chatting with you too. So thank you so much, Catherine. My pleasure. Chat soon. Under Rogan, 
We've bled too long And now we're all surrounded By the sharks and the falls Well I've been all winter here And I've been strong I've been strong No Post Growth Australia podcast. I'm your host, Michael Bayliss. You've just heard the track Ticonderoga from the Melbourne band Privateer. And before that, I spoke with Dr. Catherine Trebek, author of The Economics of Arrival. This podcast is made possible with the generous support of Sustainable Population Australia, who recognise the importance of a podcast that explores all avenues and facets of post growth. For this reason, I've been keen for this podcast not to be stuck in an echo chamber, to seek out multiple perspectives on what are often controversial issues. With this in mind, it has been interesting for me to contrast two different authors on this show with two very different perspectives on population, even though they're probably united on many, many other aspects of degrowth. For Karen Schrag, who I spoke with last episode, population sustainability is of utmost importance. Catherine Trebek holds a contrasting but also very valid perspective. We are never going to solve the world's problems by one set of values, so I think it is important we recognise and respect different views whilst focusing the points of commonality and intersection. 
there can be many focuses on different issues within the environment movement, whether it be clean energy, regenerative farming, saving forests, etc. What is important is that we look to see how we can thread them all together and create a comprehensive movement for change that brings everyone forward. By looking at how these different issues connect and by looking for the deeper issues that lie behind them, we can avoid topics such as overpopulation or green energy as being a single magic bullet solution that distracts us from the holistic systems thinking approach that we need. What is important is that we understand that the factors that enable a reduction in per capita consumption and a reduction in the rate of population growth are deeply interconnected as we move towards a post-growth society that doesn't treat humans as units of GDP. While it is essential that we move towards distributing the world's resources more equitably, so too we must massively reduce our reliance upon them. This means that we should expect to see growth in consumption in so-called developing countries and a massive reduction of consumption in the developed world. But overall, global resource consumption must decline. So while the equitable redistribution of resources must be a priority, so too must everyone have the right to make informed family planning choices and crucially, everyone should have the means to do so. We must also not be afraid of seeing populations decline. As this happens, per capita consumption will decrease as we focus less on building and making more stuff and focusing instead on retrofitting and reusing and repairing what we already have. I highly recommend listening to my interview with Florence Blondell on episode two, season two of PGAP. Florence is a Ugandan-born journalist who shares a Global South perspective on the role that family planning plays for the environment and for social justice as well. So what do you think to any or all of the above? Vehemently agree with Catherine? Vehemently disagree with me? Vehemently undecided? Make your thoughts known by filling out the contact form on the PGAP site. Send a review and rate this podcast to your favourite platform. Share wildly with both your friends and enemies. Don't discriminate. Next time, I'll be sharing some conversations that I had whilst travelling around Tasmania. I talked with so many fantastic permaculturists, degrowthers, game changers within this small but very vibrant island that I look forward to sharing. Until then, until then. <laughs>